J-Cut, and this is The K-Cut. I'm Rachel, I write for Films Fatale, and I love looking up random weird obscure films and bringing them to your attention. Who's with me? James here, content creator. I produce and release music under the Alias Boutique Paul. I'm one half of the Prefer to Say podcast. And I like to look up a lot of really obscure films, like the ones I like to share with the smorgasbord. And we are always entertained. Y- yes, and I'm sure the listeners at home are, are also entertained by our results. Uh, Andreas here, um, creator and one of the writers of Films Fatale. And I love international and art house cinema, but I also love a little bit of everything in between. And we are doing an artist overview today. So this is a non-scheduled, kind of just whenever we feel like it series, where we look over an actor or actress that we are particularly fond of, and we uh, champion a film that we love, film or TV series, I might preface. And in the second half of the episode, we uh, check out a film of theirs that we haven't seen yet that we watched specifically for this episode. So we are widening our palettes. This episode, in case you can tell by the title, is a championing of one Anya Taylor-Joy, who is still a very young actress who, you know, has only been in the been in the game for about six or seven years, but has already taken the world by storm. I feel like she has such a variety of films you know, to her name, even though there might not be many, uh, it, you know, her reach is impeccable and she's also dominated the small screen as well. So, um, yeah, that's, that's why I chose her for this episode. That's really cool. Yeah. So we start off with her favorites. We've previously done Tom Hanks and Salma Hayek for this series. Um, I, f- can I go first? Is that okay? Yeah, absolutely. Sure. I found Anya Taylor-Joy a little bit difficult to research for this because her career has been relatively short. So it was kind of difficult for us each to find six separate films to talk about. So for my favorite, it's actually a TV series, but one could say it's of cinematic quality. And you all know what I'm going to be saying. It's The Queen's Gambit, which I hope that you all stayed home and watched this during quarantine. It is just wonderfully done. It's a fantastic story of the um, of the Soviet era, uh, Cold War era chess champion who has a dark and troubled past, and I think it's the best role that Taylor Joy has ever played in terms of writing. It's very deep, it's very compelling, but it is a character that, in the wrong actor's hands, could fall very flat because she's somewhat monotone. She's very focused on one goal, and I can totally see that story going completely wrong. So that. There's nuance written into the part, but it needed an actor with enough nuance to match it. And that's why I think The Queen's Gambit was so successful. Had it been Oscar eligible, I'm very certain that Taylor Joy would be an Oscar nominee by now. Actually, she should have been an Emmy nominee, like an Emmy winner, actually. But um, the problem with the Emmys is that they happen so long after a lot of other shows like the, you know, the Golden Globes or the BAFTAs kind of have their rounds with their television awards. And uh, by the time the Emmys were around, she was kind of old news next to Kate Winslet in Mare of Easton, which is also a fantastic performance. Otherwise, every other award, I think, was swept by the Queen's Gambit. It certainly got the best miniseries, um, best direction, I think. And, yeah, it's easy to see why. You know, it's it's unfortunate that she just missed out. But, yeah, you're absolutely right. Had the Academy considered, you know, miniseries as a form of cinema – I absolutely feel like it would have been nominated for a whole bunch of stuff. You know, it's cinematography, it's writing, um, a lot of supporting performances, but for sure Anya as well. And costumes. Let's not forget those amazing costumes. 
and costumes. I feel like for a period piece, it's just so spot on, aesthetic, dynamic, just so good. Absolutely. And uh, it's got a very strong supporting cast, as you mentioned, the guy who plays the old man, all of her chess friends. And I like the the aspects where she was traveling, where she was playing in Mexico and, and things like that, and other games she played that I won't mention. And just seeing these glimpses of the world as it was then through this TV series, it was a really neat experience. Yeah, I haven't had a chance to rewatch a lot of shows uh, just because I find them very uh, time-consuming when you try to ingest all of it. The Queen's Gambit is one of those rare exceptions where I've seen it once and I felt like it was quite great, but maybe a teensy bit overrated. But when you watch it a second time, I actually kind of disagree with how I previously felt. I feel like it's really triumphant. I feel like it's just so engaging. And again, if you haven't seen it the second time, Rachel, I highly recommend it. It's Oh, yeah, it's, right? It's, it's even better the second time. Oh, yeah, I would agree. And I think it only really picks up its steam in the last two episodes, really. Like, I mean, th- those make the series for me. Well, especially Endgame, the finale, I feel like is, uh, even though you know exactly what's going to happen, I feel like the buildup and the momentum and just the execution is just absolutely stunning. James, have you seen it? Yes, I don't remember when, but I took some time to watch it over a week, and uh, I actually really enjoyed it. It's really fascinating because apparently the creator of the show who adapted the book, because for those who know, it's actually based on a book from, I think, the 80s. And it took like three decades to get made. Because nobody was interested in chess. But at the same time, like one of the people who wanted to actually have his directorial debut until unfortunate circumstances happened was one Heath Ledger. He wanted to actually direct a project um you know, adapting this book. And that was like the closest we got until now. No way. What a great tidbit. Oh, wow. I had no idea. Yeah. I just remember reading. It's like he kept getting the guy kept getting turned down by every network until now. And it kind of was kind of makes me think of like squid game. Cause squid game is like the credit of that. He had been shopping around forever and couldn't get anybody. And it's kind of funny how like Netflix picks up these shows. And it's like, I always wonder if all these networks who turn down these shows that Netflix picks up are like, man, we really should have just went with it. Yeah, well, maybe not anymore, but we'll say no more about that. <laughs> yeah, fair enough. Yeah, so any any more additional thoughts on um, on Queen's Gambit before we move on? Well, her career is still early, but right now I would call this her signature role. I think if you're going to uh, watch, if you're going to learn more about Anya Taylor-Joy, this is the best one to pick. Yes, absolutely. Which one did you go with? I went with the first film of hers. It's uh, it's her big breakthrough by uh, Robert Eggers. It's called The Witch. And I, I mean, I like so many things that she's done. But in this particular film, I guess the whole world was introduced to her. Um, you can already tell two things right off the bat when you watch The Witch. Back in 2016, when it was the sleeper hit that overtook, I think it was Sundance Film Festival. And... Um, all these journalists were like, I was excited to go to the festival. I wasn't expecting to bring this film home with me. The first one is that Eggers is a contemporary tour to watch. And two films later, I don't think that's changed. I feel like he's just been one of the greatest of this generation. Um, and then there's Annie Taylor-Joy, whose career was, uh, was uh, you know, jump-started even quicker. So I feel like in this film, which if you don't know, it's like a very minimalist uh kind of pagan horror film that takes place in Puritan era England. Um, and it involves a lot of like mysterious stuff that's happening 
you know, within like a small village and uh, how everybody kind of dives into hysteria. I feel like a very good sister film to watch if you wanted to do a double feature or something like The Crucible. Um, yeah, The Witch is fascinating, but I feel like Anya in it is so captivating and commanding whilst also be playing very naturally. And I feel like she's somebody who has a lot of like kind of not similar roles, but she's one of those types of performers who brings a lot of the same uh, qualities to different roles, but I feel like she kills it every time. But in this particular role, uh, she was like unlike anything that she's done before since. And uh, just unlike a lot of horror performances in general. Um, Yeah. Just fascinating to watch. It sounds incredible. I have not gotten around to it yet, but I am very fascinated with the sort of hysteria surrounding witches that happened over the centuries. So it really sounds like a fascinating topic. Yeah, it's um, it's definitely worth watching, uh, especially because I, I can't really say without spoiling what type of a character um, Anya plays, but it's something that's not necessarily concrete, like the protagonist or whatever. There's like a very... Um, it's a very uh, textured kind of uh, amalgamation of, you know, traits in a performance. And it really adds to the milieu of the film, like the uncertainty and the, uh, yeah, again, like you feel like you're heading into this big mist and you don't know what's going to happen on the opposite side when you leave it. And I feel like her performance is a big reason why. That's really cool. Have you seen it, James? Yeah, I actually watched it for the second half of this episode. Oh, so we'll get your thoughts later on, I guess. Yes. Oh, we'll, that's good. We'll get oh, my thoughts the- later on. <laughs> yeah. Okay, so what did you pick, James? Okay, so, yeah, as Rachel stated, the trouble with this, with doing Anastasia Ojoi, is because I think there's there's barely enough notable performances to fill these slots, and... um what is my absolute favorite happens to be Andreas's pick that he picked for the second episode. So I'm going to actually go with another role to kind of fill out the episode. I'm going to go with Split, which everyone's familiar with. The you know it was M Night Shyamalan's kind of like big return to like mainstream relevance and actual critical acclaim for once. And also, sorry, opposite James McAvoy. And I thought this was a really good performance because this was this was her next project after The Witch, and I think. Her her performance in The Witch was great, and I think the performance in Split kind of solidified that she was somebody to watch. Because I think the way she kind of anchors the cast, as well as being, as well as her chemistry with James McAvoy throughout this movie, I think it, it's really telling. Of you know, you don't really get a lot of young stars who kind of get fast tracked in the way that she does. Because a lot of people, it's like because these aren't really like the general mainstream films that a lot of people get noticed on, she's doing the more interesting stuff right out the gate. And I think that's where her kind of strength lies because it's like, you see all these performances that are critically acclaimed. I think the most kind of commercial thing she's really done is maybe Emma. But even then Mm -hmm. that's a little bit more nuanced than a lot of the commercial fare. I mean, she did new mutants, which which was an X-Men spinoff, but that was delayed so much that I still haven't gotten to it because I kind of lost interest. And I've heard that it's not very good. (laughs) I heard she's great though. But yeah, you know, and I and I think it helps that she was playing um because the character she's playing, it's what it, it's really because it's like I think she was like closer to the actual age of these characters instead of like, you know, a 20-something playing these teenagers like we often saw throughout history. 
But yeah, I just thought, you know, especially it's a more of a, both these roles are very isolated. They're small casts and they're restricted to kind of one area. So I think to pull off a character who's, you know, obviously a kind of affected by this isolation and also just the adverse environment. Yeah, she's just really, you know, I, I'm really excited to see where she goes, especially having seen. Yeah, yeah, because like you said, it's what I think she's only been, what, seven years now. Mm-hmm. And yeah, I don't I can't recall anybody really anybody else who's had such a short career but has done so much already. I mean, we've seen it, but I can't really think of any off the top of my head that have like done like you know, critical hit after critical hit after critical hit. It's a story that rarely happens in the modern day. I think it was a little more common in old Hollywood when the studios could control everything. But yeah, you don't hear about that. They have to work their way up from tiny bit parts. And The Witch was her very first role, right? It it wasn't like her first major role or that I'm not sure. I I b- believe it was like her first. Well, she only had one in her features list. There was only one other role, and it was a deleted scene from a movie. Okay. So oh. so the witch was literally like her like like her introduction and her breakthrough. Yes. Yeah. Well, um, I so uh, you know if we're going back to split, um, I'm not the biggest M. Night Shyamalan fan having said that I feel like there's a few films of his that are actually like you know likable enough and Split's one of those ones where you know before I get more into it I just said I'm not a fan of his but I've always like wanted his films to be good because I've always like liked the ideas like I after Earth on paper sounds really good and I'm sad that it isn't Split's one of those ones where I feel like he's kind of getting what's on paper onto the big screen and it it it, it Succeeds like a little bit and yeah, it's a pleasure to watch, but I feel like, you know, to your point, this was, you know, the witch isn't going to be like everyone's go-to blockbuster type of film where somebody's going to spread like wildfire outside of like, you know, hardcore cinephile kind of circles or, you know, film festival circles, critical circles. So something like split, I feel like was the perfect podium because, you know, right next to established people like uh, Samuel L. Jackson and obviously James McAvoy plays like, 30 different people or however many it is um you've got her and i feel like this was like a great opportunity for her to shine especially up against some veteran actors and it was a uh, well uh samuel jackson w- wouldn't come until he makes a glass that's true i which uh, she's also in yeah but it's like a split was just an unexpected hit yeah i remember when it took off and everyone's like wait he can still direct <laughs> yeah and it made like i think it was um because i was reading um articles talking about it that and Get Out had the biggest marginal profits when it comes to the percentage of they made because I think it made like something like nineteen hundred percent its profit or something like that. So because it was like it was made for nine million and it made like a hundred and sixty something million, if not more, or something like that, if I'm remembering correctly. So it's like for for like this what should have been a small film to be a big hit like that and you know be you know such early on for Anya Taylor Joy, I think it's just like, you know, perfect. Yeah. It was, it was made for 9 million and made $278.5 million at the box office. Wow. I feel like these are some great starting points for what we have seen. Um, you know, we've got a, a major release here. We've got a, an indie darling. We have a, a mini series. So what did we end up watching to spread our horizons when it comes to, the work of Ani Taylor Joy. And I don't think anyone picked Emma mostly because I think we've already seen it for like Oscar, you know, related stuff, but yeah, I think with Emma, it was kind of like 
nobody's favorite. <laughs> like, it's fine, but nobody's not outstanding. She was really good in it, but it was not the top I would pick from her career. I feel like if she wasn't in it and it was somebody else who doesn't really nail the part, it'd be um, probably not talked about at all. Even though I feel like it's still like well made on the production side of things, still. Anyway, everyone knows that the only true rendition of Emma is Clueless, so they will never top that. Uh, yeah. Okay, they were going to say the, yeah. the Gwyneth Paltrow one, and I was going to be like, no. <laughs> Clueless, yes. Okay, so uh, maybe let's go in the same order. Who watched what, again, to uh, expand our, our knowledge of, of this thespian? Well, I watched Last Night in Soho, which I'd been meaning to watch last fall, but then it started kind of tanking critically, so I figured it wouldn't get any Oscar nominations, and I was right. So I did not watch it because I was deep in Oscar prep at the time. So Last Night in Soho is interesting, because I feel like it's a film that gets all the way to third base and then does not reach home. It had so many great elements, but it was trying to do too many different things at once, and it didn't really hold together uh coherently i would say there's just too many threads that they didn't manage to weave very well i will say that i don't think this is a great example of an anya taylor joy film it's not that she isn't good in it it's just if i wanted to see a performance from her that encompassed the full range of her acting skills i would not pick this one this is much more thomas and mckenzie's film um I can't really describe the plot without spoiling everything about it, but um, I will tell you she plays a kind of 60s uh, British singer type. Like, they play a lot of songs from Eurovision in that movie. And, um, yeah, like, she has some good scenes. She has a few meaty uh, moments, but ultimately it's just underwritten compared to what she's capable of. So, like... It's got a lot of cool elements, but as a retrospective in her career, I would probably leave it out eventually when she has more than six. Yeah, I I like the film, but I feel like I really like it more so because it really pertains to me. I'm obsessed with the 60s. I love aesthetic, technicolor stuff, and I feel like on those notes, it's uh, it's quite fantastic. But, you know, without spoiling it to your point, I feel like part of the problem is it being underwritten. And, you know, you brought up that it's doing too much. Um it's being a horror throwback, but also trying to be like a social commentary on sexism in, you know, in the world, in the workplace, through the gaze of cinema. But it's highly contradictory when it does so. And I feel like that's the film's biggest flaw, where I was with the film until the climax, which I don't want to spoil. If you really want to know, you could read my review on it. I, I go into great detail there. Um, I feel like... The, uh, you know, when the film succumbs to being a horror film and not a commentary, it just completely derails the whole thing to the point of it going from a potential work of brilliance from Edgar Wright to Last Night and So-So. Like, I, I still really <laughs> like it, but in terms of uh, what it could have been, it's my least favorite Wright film. I still really like it, but this could have been his genre magnum opus type thing. And it, it just yeah. isn't. It just didn't do any of what it was trying to do enough. Yeah. And, you know, to bring this back to Anya and to your point, I feel like she does as well as she can with the, the role. I feel like she's got this mystique about her, which certainly adds to who the character is and why that's important. Don't want to spoil. But again, 
perhaps it's underwritten, but at the same time, she's still succumbing to the same stereotypes that they're trying to comment on. It's like, well, you're trying to discuss how women are maligned or, um, you know, objectified, yet you also don't give her any kind of substance outside of these horror tropes. So are you guilty of doing exactly what you're chastising others for? It got partway there. It just, I don't think, is going to be a shining light in her career when all is said and done. Yeah, it's it's too bad because, you know, I was expecting such brilliant things. Uh, James, uh, by, by your silence, I'm guessing you have not seen this yet. No, not yet. I, I, I plan to. And from what I'm hearing, I think Edgar Wright's hit a new phase of his career. And it sounds like he hasn't quite figured out his grounding yet. Yeah. Because, like, Baby Driver was quite a turn from what he was typically doing. It's like you got the Three Fingers Cornetto trilogy. You had Scott Pilgrim versus the World. He wrote Ant Man. Then he does Baby Driver, which is kind of like a throwback to like Getaway Driver heist films, and that does really well. So it's like okay, now he's dipping into more traditional genre territory. So I think it's I think it's just a matter of him figuring it out. Yeah. No, fair enough. I'm excited um, to see it visually from things I've heard of it. It, oh yeah, aesthetically, like the sound and everything. Even though it like kind of fell off the face of the earth, I still feel like it was snubbed of a sound nomination at the Oscars. I feel like the sound is just like any other Edgar Wright film, impeccable. And like production design wouldn't have been out of place, that kind of thing. Yeah, exactly. Okay, so um, I guess on to me now. Um, I watched a film that I know James, you really like. Uh, and I've been told about this 10,000 times. I kept seeing it on Netflix. So I was like, okay, I'm going to finally watch it. And then, of course, when I want to watch it, it's not on Netflix. So I, I had to rent it, but no problem there. Uh, happy to, to send money towards this. It's uh, Corey Finley's directorial debut, Thoroughbred. So good. So, yeah, similarly to Last Night in Soho, where uh, she's up against Thomas and McKenzie. Um, and this film, she's paired as well, uh, this time with Olivia Cook who at the time was also an up-and-coming actress um, of sorts. Um, it's also the last film to have, you know, the late Anton Yelchin, which is, you know, really sad, and he's absolutely brilliant in this film. Um, Thoroughbreds is very interesting, and unlike Last Night at Soho, I feel like Anya Taylor-Joy is given a lot of material and a lot of juice in this film to, to work with, and and so does Olivia Cook. I feel like... Um, First off, this this goes into this this genre of a film that doesn't really exist, um, but I'm gonna make it up. Um, it's uh, it's two women banding together to kind of release hell on the world. Uh, so you know, less ceremony or um, a heavenly creatures with Kate Winslet. There are a lot of comparisons um, to Heather's when it came out. To Heather's, yeah, exactly. Uh, I feel like there are a lot of films, uh, to an extent, Thelma and Louise. So in this film, we have two former friends who are, you know, united in, you know, kind of their high school years. Um, and uh, they're both kind of outcasts, you know, in their own ways. Uh, more so Olivia Cook's character, who's kind of like, you know, forced to being friends with uh, Anya's character again. And they bond more than they anticipated, mostly because I feel like uh, Cook is able, like Olivia is able to 
to break into Anya's head and like get her to realize things that maybe she never saw. And uh, Anya is warmth for Olivia in a world where she feels very, uh, very neglected and very maligned. And they hatch a scheme. And I don't want to say more than that, but basically, you know, like these other films that we alluded to, um, we're seeing the deconstruction of, um, you know, these, uh, these prettied up households and the, the uh, nuclear family, um, you know, with all of its uh, hidden underbelly secrets and the film dips into some very dark territory. And yeah, I don't want to say too much about it, but there you go. Yeah. I actually saw this in theaters because I saw the trailers and I was immediately interested with how the trailer played. I was like, okay, I got to see this. And this was after, you know, after seeing Anya Taylor join split, I was like, Oh, okay. Another performance. Let's see it. But it was also really interesting because this is Corey Finley's first, you know, it's his directorial debut and he also wrote it. And it's one of those rare screenplays in features where it's like, this is almost, it's a little too wise. It's a little too wise to be a debut. Like this doesn't play like a debut. This plays like something you do, maybe your third or fourth film, but you know, the performances are great. And then like you said, you know, last, the last role Anton Yelchin played before he passed, which is so unfortunate because th- this was one of his best roles too. Just his presence. But yeah, I think, I think it's a good balance into the mixture we've seen with Anya Taylor because it's like, once again, she's playing like, you know, teenagers dealing with some form of alienation, but this one's just because you're dipping into like high class suburbia. So just having that backdrop with this kind of like dark comedy angle, is just really interesting. And just to see her, you know, cause she's very, she portrays herself as being very put together where Olivia Cook's character is more like she, intentionally alienates the world around her by doing these really bizarre things and just you know she she's a person just one of the people who has like you know she just really can't feel emotions so it's like you know so she she's just this certain way and just the the bond that they have is very interesting to see because it's one of those like classic stories it's like you know these two unlikely people form this friendship and then you know, something insane happens, you know, I, it's so hard not to spoil it because it's, it's one of those things you don't really expect, but you kind of see it coming throughout once you see their lives. <clears throat> but yeah, I, I think it's just, you know, this was just, it, again, it's, it's right in a row. Cause this came out in 2017. So you got the witch, you've got split and then you have this in 2017. So it's just like every single year, she's just, you know, she's just proving more and more that she's someone to, you know, keep watch for because she's proving that she can do, like these heavy roles, but still have her own kind of, I don't know what to call it. Like a je ne sais quoi. Yeah. Just something like that. There's just something about her. Like she has the presence of like a classic movie star, but without like the glamor attached to it. Would you describe her as an it girl? Either of you. Oh, she's almost like an anti it girl. Yes and no, because, I mean, she is uh, one of the recent models for, like, I think it's uh, Tiffany's. Mm-hmm. Like, I, I feel like she's yeah, she like, does a lot still of encompassing. I don't know yeah, she's still encompassing a lot of, like, the, the you know, the photo shoots and everything. Uh, but at the same time, yeah, she kind of does play by her own rules at the same time. So, I don't know. To me, that still makes her an it girl, because she's just telling you what her version of it is. And a lot of people are trying to follow suit. So, even though uh, she's not exactly conforming by all of the standards she's setting the trend so i would still call her an it girl i'd consider her to be an it girl i think she has it and right now she's the person sort of in the limelight yeah and especially 
Because, you know, like in this episode, we're discussing um, indie stuff, all these genre films, including period pieces, television, uh, the big screen, small screen. Um, she's kind of been everywhere and done everything. And she's at least wowed people to some capacity in all forms. So, I mean, um, yeah, everybody's paying attention. I think as far as it girl, it's almost like she's an it girl in the indie sense, like Chloe 70 was, but she has that very kind of Julia Roberts charm about her. Yeah. I don't know if I'd compare her to okay, Julia Roberts, charm Roberts. of some sort, like, like, like somebody else who's like similarly charming, but like, I feel like it's exuded through like interviews and then whatnot as well. Yeah. Cause she has a great personality from anything I've seen of her. Just like just her speaking in general. And she has a very distinctive appearance. You're not going to mistake anyone else for her. Yeah, it's almost like uh, Emma Stone. They both have very yeah. distinct faces that are just, you know, when you see it, you just know it's them. Yeah, Emma Stone's a good comparison, actually. But Emma Stone was not in the film that you watched, James. What did you watch again? <laughs> oh, so w- w- we discussed it earlier. I actually watched The Witch. Now, and I agree with everything you said, but I think it's important to note that an introductory performance oftentimes can also be weighed to who's directing. And this is the directorial debut of Robert Eggers. So I think that played into kind of her performance as well, because this is his first feature. So it's like, you know, he's got to make an impression, but he also, he clearly has a defined vision. And I think that's what came into play into his direction with her, because this is, this is, this is one of those movies where it's like, you know, I don't really, you know, it's yes, it's her debut, but it doesn't really feel like a debut performance given the kind of material she's given because yeah, because it's like, you know, the the kind of like horror, the folk horror angle that he went for, I think this is very, you kind of have to tap into that period. And I actually saw in the credits that they actually have a frame of dis- that displays. It's like he actually took this from like journals and like all sorts of folklore and researching this entire story that, you know, he pulled dialogue directly from the source material. So to just kind of tap into that and this kind of presence she has of, you know, it's almost noirish, and she kind of has this unreliable narrator angle to her. When, because you know, uh, uh, of how the story unfolds and how it ends, it's like you know, this kind of push and pull. It's like, what's really going on? Is she the cause of everything, or is she the victim? But then, once you get to the end, and you're like, wait a second, and it also has probably one of my favorite. And I love ambiguous endings, and this one just has one of those where it's like, you know you get you don't really get a resolution you get this kind of crescendo and just this like stop we're like okay what happens next also i'm finding it interesting that we're kind of seeing more like witch related stuff in recent years because there's that there's that remake of suspiria there's i think i don't know um hereditary kind of plays with that too maybe we finally all got tired of zombies I don't know. I, yes, I like that. I like that folklore is kind of coming back because it's it is a really interesting point in history. Like just all these legends about witches and you know witchcraft and all that. So to see it come back, it's really it, I don't know. I think it's like it's one of those things where like fashion kind of comes back around. I think we've kind of hit that with film. Like we got certain things coming back around that we've been waiting to come back around. <coughs> Also, it's amazing how young she looks compared to, like, right after that. Just because it's like, what, she probably would have been, I think she's, what, like, 23 now or something like that? So she would have been, like, 15, 16 shooting this? I think she's, like, slightly older, but yeah. Oh, so she just is perfect for period pieces. 
And I think that goes with like like her certain features she has. Because it's like she's done all these different type of it's like, you know, she does this this time period. She does like the late night in Soho, it's the sixties, and then you know, you got which what was um Queen's Gambit? Was that? Yeah. That was the sixties. That was sixties also. But that was a different kind of sixties though, with her style. I mean through the first part. Much more realistic sixties, I would say. Yeah. So yeah, I'm really or also in Emma. True. It's like like she's got this universal look that just sort of you could just throw her in any costume in any plot and she just works. And that will probably work to her advantage as time goes on. Oh yeah. Yeah, I thought she was I thought she did great. You know, you I'm always really interested when I see like young people's debuts because it's not like a, somebody like you know who got like there's like the the, the breakout of an older actor and then there's a breakout of a younger actor and those are kind of two different things. Mm-hmm. Like it's not like you know Samuel Jackson got his breakthrough at 40, mm-hmm. and that's very different because of the, how his career trajectory went. But when you got somebody who's done it like from a teenager, because we're also kind of seeing that with like Timothy Chalamet, except I don't think he's got the kind of hype that she does or his is a little bit different than hers i would say the two of them would have cheekbones for days i want to see them <laughs> in a movie together yeah they would actually work really well maybe it might be too much like of this of the similar style but you never know yeah you never know but um yeah i feel like we had a very successful research session um I feel like we can dip into our weekly recommendations, but before we do that, uh, where can all of our listeners find us? Especially if you're on your Taylor joy. Uh, yes, we're, we're big fans. Please give us a shout out, whatever. We are on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram under the K cut. Our collective film this month for cinematic smorgasbord is going to be Shaolin soccer. And then our individual films will be the graduate, the color of pomegranates and, um, Freddie got fingered. Yeah. Where else are you going to, Hear those four films in the same sentence. No yeah, we might up with a weird lot sometimes. <laughs> it really is a smorgasbord. Who wants to make a random recommendation first? And it can be Anya-themed or not Anya-themed. Up to you. I did not pick an Anya theme, mostly because your career is so small. But I will say something very important happened this week that totally changed the tide of the news and is rather important to be following, and that is the possible collapse of Roe v. Wade in the United States. So in the spirit of that, I am picking a movie called If These Walls Could Talk. It was a television film, and it involves three women who face the situation of potential abortion in the 1950s, 1970s, and 1990s. It's got Demi Moore, uh, Sissy Spacek, Anne Hesch, and Cher, who also directs part of the film. And it's, you got to see it. Like, it has to be seen. It's very important. And, oh, there's a young Jada Pinkett in it as well. But we can't talk about her. <laughs> no, I, uh, yeah, especially because now everybody knows where to find us on our socials, uh, including possibly Will Smith. Um, no, that does sound very important. And, you know, uh, obviously, this is no joking matter. I feel like this is very serious. Uh, not to get political on the pod or anything, but um, please, Please, everybody, be be conscious of this. This, this uh, affects everyone. If you don't think it affects you, you're sorely mistaken. And uh, I wish we would stop objectifying uh, women and, yeah, like, hands off their bodies, pretty much. So, okay. Um, if I'm going to pick a film, I'm going to go with, let's see. 
James, you want to jump in if you have one? <laughs> sure, I'll go with one. Uh, this is totally random. I'm going to go with Sling Blade, which was written, directed, and starring Billy Bob Thornton. Yay! Didn't he win an Oscar for that? For writing this? Yes. Yeah, it's um, actually really. It's actually based on a short film that he did. Uh, it's about a um, story of a man who is uh, intellectually disabled, and he's released from a psychiatric hospital where he had been living since the age of twelve after killing his mother and her lover. And it's kind of the story he um, shows developing this relationship he has with this uh, young boy and uh, his mother, and them kind of dealing uh, with her abusive husband. And uh, it's a it's a really good story. It's a really small film, and uh, yeah, Billy Bob Thornton actually is really talented as a writer and director, and this definitely makes it apparent. Yeah, um, I just caught him because I did my first run through of Fargo, and yeah, I feel like he's a very underrated actor, but also yeah, a really good writer. You know, when it comes to that film, especially. Um, Completely random. I'm going to go with Louis Buñuel's film, The Exterminating Angel. If you are a frequent listener, uh, you're probably familiar with uh, The Discreet Charm of the Bourgeoisie, which I recommended, I think, to Rachel for the Smorgasbord. Um, This is kind of like an earlier, you know, prototype version of that, where, you know, it's this notion of... um, you know, the upper class having a dinner gone awry, not nearly as surreal, but surreal still. And yeah, it's quite affecting no matter how you see it. If you see it as a satire, if you see it as a drama, however you see it, this is um, some visceral watching. Alrighty, and that was the K-Cut. We are now going into the L-Cut. Cut.